It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, dude? Hey, man. Just had a bit of a hectic work day, but we're here. We're ready to do this. Is this your intensity day? I suppose you could, I can, you could, you could think about it that way. Sure. (laughs) High high effort medical care. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, a couple very complex patients, but not a massive overall volume of patients. I'll put it that way. Uh, Yeah. Well, that makes sense. As the volume goes down, the intensity has to go up. That just (laughs) programming 101. Uh, All right. Well, if this is your first uh, episode listening to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, we were happy to have you. If you're a returning listener, thank you for coming back. This is episode 209. And this particular episode is going to address a recent, I don't want to call it a bombshell because then it feels like we're playing into the controversy here. But here's what happened. On January 9th of this year, 2023, the American Academy of Pediatrics published new guidelines for treating obesity in children and adolescents, which for the first time recommended medications and surgery as possible treatment options. As you may have guessed, this has stirred up some controversy. So in this episode, we'll go deep into weight loss medications, what they are, how they work, who they're for, and of course, what we think about these new recommendations for children. So we're going to we're gonna stir up some stuff. I'm glad that this hasn't ended up on YouTube because just I feel like the comments would just be a dumpster fire, like just absolute dumpster fire. That is uh, something that tends to be true independent of the content of the video. <laughs> That's true. All right, fair enough. Uh, as always, this podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts, trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes. Choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Pioneer has belts to fit your needs, whether it's a 13 millimeter thick, four inch wide lever belt for powerlifting, a Velcro hybrid belt for CrossFit, and everything in between. They'll also make custom belts for your specifications. Just give them an email. All products are made in the USA and they carry a warranty. Check them out at generalleathercraft.com and support those who support us. We are going to be giving a, doing a giveaway with Pioneer Belts. So, going to get some uh some people entered into this thing and give and and do that so stay tuned i think we're going to announce that on our next podcast potentially our next newsletter so we'll see also we have new merchandise over at the barbell medicine store so we've got the barbell medicine lifting club stuff we've got the flags banners whatever you want to call them they're up there in limited quantities i know they're going fast so hurry uh because don't know when they're going to be back and also we have some uh, live in-person seminars coming up so this weekend i believe there's one spot left uh, for the miami pain and rehab seminar so one spot left if you're listening to this uh when this goes up uh, you got a few days so hopefully you're local and you can get down yeah, there and arrange right. travel. Um, <laughs> otherwise, we'll be in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, I think just outside of Atlanta, actually, for our two-day pain or uh, health and performance seminar. That's going to be the first weekend of February. And then we'll be in New York at uh, South Brooklyn Weightlifting Club in May. So that's all linked in the description below. Uh, and then finally, if you've got some form checks that you want me to review on our YouTube channel, send them to media at barbellmedicine.com. Ideally, they're in landscape. So, you know, turn your phone sideways and hopefully they're a multi-rep set of squat, bench, deadlift, press, some of the variations, whatever. Uh, still not doing any swimming form checks yet, but maybe <laughs> I'm still working on it. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe in the future. Uh, before we hop into this, Austin, everything outside of the hospital going, going okay for you? Doing great? Yeah. Juggling all the usual things that, that keep me going and engaged on the work and education front and training is going okay. I had recently in the recent past had some, some aches and pains crop up, but I had uh, successfully found an entry point and things are moving on their way back up. So yeah, no complaints. I think two weeks ago we were like, our back hurts. 
yeah, like collectively. Right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, at that a few days later was completely gone. Uh, last week I pulled six twenty for a couple sets of five, and then I squatted on a safety squat bar yesterday five twenty for three sets of eight. So, <laughs> guess guess Moder- we're back. Mo- moderately strong. Moderately strong, yeah, not impressively strong, but in my own in my own head, yeah, and in my in my gym, uh, yeah, moderately strong. So, all right, enough about us. Let's get into this. So, first, uh, the structure of this podcast, we're going to talk about what obesity is, how we view this as a disease, and what causes it, and then we'll talk about the medications, how they work, uh, and some nuance along the way, and then we'll finally get to the new clinical practice guidelines for treating obesity in uh, children and adolescents. Weigh in on those, and then you know we'll send you on your way. Uh, so this will be a, uh, a I don't know, I, I think a really interesting podcast for those who are uh, health professionals, fitness professionals, and then everyone in between. So let's start off with the definition here uh, about what obesity is. We view it as a chronic, relapsing, multifactorial neurobehavioral disease, wherein an increase in body fat promotes adipose tissue or body fat dysfunction and abnormal fat mass physical forces resulting in adverse metabolic, biomechanical, and psychosocial health consequences. Now, that is a mouthful. That's actually, I believe that comes from the American Board of Obesity Medicine. Uh, I believe it was also used in one of the recent position stands on treating obesity as a disease. So, Austin, just briefly, like, if you're, obviously, you're not talking about obesity as a disease to patients and, like, defining the whole thing. But when you're teaching your residents about this, because I'm sure this comes up all the time, how do you how do you phrase this or frame this to your residents? Yeah, so I think that viewing it as, as a long-term disease process that um, wherein somebody's underlying physiology itself, as it kind of interacts with the surrounding environment, it tends to lead towards the accumulation of body fat, and that body fat itself can have a bunch of physiologic and psychosocial consequences. And so the the, the main point that I'm trying to get across there is that the the excess body fat is actually a sign of the underlying disease process that we call obesity. It is not itself obesity. Whereas when you talk to people in the lay public, they view obesity as the body fat itself. And I think that that is not only incorrect and less help and, and somewhat unhelpful, but um, but it also contributes to a lot of the stigma and and poor understanding of this condition that there is out there. So, so rather, I try to frame it as there is this underlying biology going on in the person and the way that that interacts with the current surrounding environment that we all live in, um, uh, the, 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 the interaction between those two leads to multiple outcomes, but one of them is this, is this accumulation of body fat, which is a sign of kind of what's going on underneath. Mm-hmm. underneath. They're not the same thing. Yeah. No, I like that. And then that sign leads us kind of to what I would consider the root cause, so to speak, or like the final common pathway is that there is a preservation of energy balance of this greater than healthy or greater than normal body fat level due to a mismatch between appetite and satiety or feelings of fullness. And so when you ask somebody like, oh, what is the main cause of obesity in the lay public? They say, oh, just eating too many calories you know, or eating more calories than you burn or whatever. And it's like, well, these individuals are not gaining weight ad infinitum like forever, but rather they're maintaining this excess store of energy. Uh, and what you'd prefer to happen or in an ideal world is that once the body realizes like, hey, we've got this extra, these extra energy stores on board, uh, we should reduce our intake and 
get rid of some of the stuff because it's not really doing anything good for us. And in some individuals that happens, our, your weight, you know, oscillates day to day, week to week, month to month or whatever, in a fairly narrow band. And if you're able to maintain a normal, healthy level of body fat, then, you know, your body's auto automatically correcting for days when you eat more or burn less and vice versa. And some individuals are set up in a way where that's, uh, there's a mismatch and they're preserving the sort of excess energy stores. Yeah. And there's, there's, a, there's several different models that have been proposed and ongoing debate among them about, is there like a specific set point that people have where they get to this weight and sit there? Or, you know, there's, if for people who have gone down this kind of nerdy rabbit hole, the, the dual intervention point model and various other things that I think are probably a bit beyond the scope here. And additionally, there's also more factors than just, you know, appetite or feelings of hunger and, and feelings of fullness there that is a very significant variable um, that can that can play a role here but there's also you know other mechanisms that can be involved in uh, driving you know eating behavior and, and and food seeking and things like that in people um, and and so a ton of that as we will get to, is not necessarily active, conscious, you know, decisions that that people are making. And I know that this is not a new topic for us on on this podcast, but I know that you know we're growing, and there may be new listeners, and so we're going to introduce some some new concepts to that as well. Yep. So obesity rates have tripled since the 1970s, and the fact that there are more obese individuals globally than those who are underweight means a lot of this mismatch for whatever reason is going on. So the real question is why. And the way we kind of think about this is that. Nearly 70% of an individual's obesity risk is attributable to genetics, which mostly have to do with brain function with respect to appetite regulation, food-related behaviors, activity-related behaviors, and sort of uh, how their physiology changes in response to an energy deficit or energy surplus. There are individuals who, when given an energy surplus, they ramp up their metabolic rate, they ramp up their physical activity, and can tolerate that without becoming obese. And so we would call those individuals obesity resistant, for example, and other individuals will not do any of those things. And we call those individuals uh, in the literature, obesity sensitive. And so this is not people actively choosing to exercise less or more or ramp up their met metabolism because you can't consciously just think about your metabolism and say, go baby, go. It's just one of those things that happens in response to your surrounding environment based on the genetic hand that you were dealt. And again, about 70% of an individual's risk of developing obesity in their life is due to genetics, not things they're consciously choosing. And so when you factor that in to the relatively recent changes to the environment that have reduced the need for physical activity and increased the availability of cheap, high calorie food that are not filling these ultra processed foods that have invaded our food environment are pervasive, they're cheap, easily available, not filling. Uh, and you combine that with these genetically susceptible individuals. Well, hey, that's a recipe for uh, an epidemic that we've we've seen over, you know, the last four or five decades. Of course, there's plenty more to this story, but I think this overview of obesity and how it develops is helpful uh, for the next part of discussion. Like, what do we do about it? Austin, anything you want to add before we get into like goals of care here? Yeah, I mean, I think that that frames it really well. If we can get folks to understand that there's this very, very significant, you know, um, biology and environment interaction, um, and and that is kind of what leads to a lot of what we observe in in the world, um, that can be very helpful. So if you imagine two small populations like with different genetic predispositions, one one group 
who is genetically very not prone to developing obesity and another group who is very genetically prone to developing obesity. And you put both of these populations in a surrounding environment that is very sparse in terms of calories that are available to them in, in a, in a, in a, in, in, in plop them down in the middle of a famine. Uh, none of these folks, neither population will develop obesity because the environment is not conducive to it. But then if you transport both of these populations, those who are genetically susceptible and resistant, and you put them into a surrounding environment that we live in today with, you know, massive, um, you know, increase in calorie availability and convenience and tastiness everywhere, then those who are genetically resistant will tend to remain leaner. And those who are genetically susceptible will tend to gain that weight. And so that's a really important you know, uh, overarching concept to understand. And it helps us to understand what are the potential targets that we can do to manage it, right? So our options are going to be treating the biology of the person, right, on one hand, or we can treat the surrounding environment, quote unquote, by treatment. That is, you know, what we've also talked about before relating to policy change and regulation and things like that. And so it's like, do both or pick one or whatever yeah. you want, but doing neither is not a great option for this. <laughs> yeah. Why or why or when you could add, yeah. we'd ideally yeah. like to do both. One of them will be able to pull a much more effective levers, yeah. uh, but likely would do both. It's just, it's very difficult to recommend to a patient, hey, um, we need to change your entire environment, like of your surrounding community, at your home, at your place of you know employment, uh, you know all of these things. And they're like some of those stuff is under control, your control. Uh, some of the things you cannot change, and so yeah. Then then at that point we transition to treating the biology as well. So okay, goals of care for individuals with obesity. Uh, to start, I think it's important to reinforce that we should avoid this excessively myopic view or singular view that focuses exclusively on body weight or body composition as a reflection of health. People have different values, preferences, and goals, and we should respect those when treating individuals. There are often a number of lifestyle changes that can offer benefits for obesity-related chronic diseases outside of any effect on body weight or body fat. So for example, changing to a health-promoting dietary pattern that for whatever reason does not actually produce any change in body composition or body weight can, in fact, improve some of the diseases that are uh, related to obesity and, and caused by obesity. Same thing with exercise. Even if exercise doesn't drive any change in weight or body composition, you can see health improvements uh, across the board. And so I think trying to focus just on losing weight, losing body fat, I think we're missing the forest for the trees. And so, uh, and, and, and that's in, in particular, if somebody doesn't want to lose weight, we might want them to lose weight to like optimize their health trajectory. Like if gun to our head. But at the same time, if they don't want to do that for whatever reason, we're not trying to do this paternalistic thing where we're like, you got to lose weight, do it. People, yeah, people can have whatever priorities they want and they should come to us in consultation for things that they are concerned about. And um, the things they are concerned about should be the the first kind of uh, thing that should be addressed. And it's not to say that, you know, I, it, you know, it happens all the time where a patient might come to me for a particular concern. And in the course of having that conversation or reviewing their data or doing some evaluation, I might come across a new thing that that what either wasn't on their radar or that they weren't necessarily worried about. And so then that just involves more conversation to be like, here's what's going on. Here's what we found. Here's what I'm worried, you know, is could be going on. And here are my recommendations and, and here's why. And of course, people can do that or not, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think also focusing just on weight loss or change in body composition as well, you start to miss things like there may be other causes, other underlying things that you want to treat, not just you know, body weight, body composition. And so again, would not focus exclusively on that. And and even when it comes to 
behavioral change targets uh, for lifestyle lifestyle change and even medical interventions. We want to we're not treating for weight loss. We're we're treating the sort of underlying uh, mismatch that I referred to earlier, or whatever else is going on biologically, and then the result of that, if successful, is in general, a change in body weight and body composition that's favorable for health trajectories. But we're focusing on the process, not necessarily the outcome from that singular view. We're also focusing on what happens to these the existing health conditions they may have. For example, is that getting better? Um, but I wouldn't focus just on on body weight. Yeah, this I, I think just I'm going to say again slowly and reiterate because it is so important here. <laughs> the traditional view, again, that equates the body fat that a person has, that like it defines obesity, then a lot of times people use that view to say, you know, the way I treat obesity is by losing fat. And those are not the same thing. And it's not correct to say that. So when we, when, you know, as we described earlier, obesity is the underlying, you know, underlying biology, the underlying, you know, uh, issues that, that, that could be going on that then drive the behaviors in the surrounding environment that lead to the accumulation of body fat and a stabilization at a higher than healthy kind of uh, point. And so the, the correct way to view this is that if we successfully target the underlying biology that's going on, the underlying factors, then um, the weight loss will be spontaneous. The fat loss will happen as a result of successfully treating obesity. Correct, it is yeah. not that we're treating the body fat itself. That's why you can't just cut the fat out. You can't just do the liposuction. That's not I mean, work. you can, it's just not great. Yeah. It doesn't work that well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, okay. Anyway, back to the goals of care here. So for individuals who desire treatment for obesity, the end goal is to achieve sustained clinically significant weight loss. And that's defined as greater than 5% of body weight sustained for at least a year. And obviously we'd want that to be further, but just in the literature, when you look at what is the definition of clinically significant weight loss, usually they're talking about greater than 5% of the initial body weight that's sustained for a year. That also improves health outcomes or comorbidities. So diseases that people also have secondary to carrying too much body fat. To do this, we have a number of different treatment options that can be used. The current key recommendations from 19 current guidelines on managing obesity so I've just taken them and smashed them all together because there's a lot of overlap. So one, ver all of these guidelines recommend that obesity should be treated as a chronic disease. Uh, it should be managed by an, a multidisciplinary team. So not just a doctor, but doctor, registered dietitian, behavior change specialist, exercise specialist, all sorts of things, perhaps endocrinologist and multiple other uh, individuals. BMI should be used as a routine screening tool with a waist circumference as an additional measure to assess risk. And I know people out there, particularly if they're new to barbell medicine, are like, wait, I thought BMI was BS. And it's like, well, I would agree with you that it's not a great screening tool, but not for the reasons that you think. So most people think that BMI is not a great screening tool because it just over identifies individuals who are too jacked, carrying too much muscle mass and like, oh, you're calling this guy, you know, overweight or obese because their BMI is too high and they're not. They're just too jacked. So just let's do a thought experiment. Just how many people do you know are too jacked? Their BMI is greater than 30 and they're walking around lean and <laughs> that's that person is relatively rare. And they're like, well, what about you? And I'm like, my, so my BMI is 27.5. So I'm not above that threshold, that 30 threshold where we, uh, you know, identify individuals with excess adiposity or uh, individuals with obesity. And just that's a relatively rare sort of phenotype. Real big, real jacked, real lean, uh, particularly in the absence of polypharmacy. So um, the biggest problem with BMI is that it under-identifies individuals who are carrying too much body fat. 
because the cutoff is 30. And so there are individuals with lower BMIs who are carrying too much body fat. Uh, and so we just miss them. And so if we add a waist circumference to that, we'll identify more people who are carrying too much body fat, too much body fat. And uh, in addition, we'll eliminate people who are just, yo, yo, you're real jacked and lean, but your, your waist circumference is within normal, normal limits. And so we're, we're fine. I've linked a, an article on this that we published on the blog. I think it was like four or five years in, yeah, ago it's now. a while back now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so uh, after that, using uh, BMI and waist circumference as a screening tool and to assess risk, they recommend comprehensive lifestyle interventions, which, yes, includes dietary pattern change, includes behavioral specialists to uh, improve those food-related behaviors, increase physical activity, make sure sleep is on point, et cetera, et cetera. After that, yes, again, multiple guidelines are recommending uh, pharma, uh, pharmacotherapy and or surgical management. So we'll start with surgery here because this particular podcast is about uh, medications, but we'll uh, briefly cover some surgical management indications. So the current guidelines suggest that individuals should be considered for bariatric surgery if their BMI is greater than 35 with no comor comorbidities, uh, or if they have a BMI between 30 and 34.9, if they have some sort of uh, obesity-related chronic disease. And I know what you guys are thinking at home. You're like, so you're telling me if I got a, someone's got a BMI of 31, they're just barely over the limit uh, and have you know one uh, condition like high blood pressure or they're pre-diabetic or whatever, the they might be a candidate for surgery. And it's like, yeah, when you actually look at the data, they do much better than individuals with the BMI greater than 35. They tend to lose more weight, sustain more weight loss, have a more rapid and more sustained uh, improvement in their disease processes. And so that's why these recommendations have changed. Even as recent, uh, I think if you go back to like 2019 or 2020. This is a relatively new change uh, in some of these guidelines. And that's not just for adults. That's also for children. For children, they're recommending um, that bariatric surgery may be considered for children or adolescents who have a BMI of greater than 120% and a major uh, obesity-related chronic disease or a BMI greater than 140% with no additional uh, disease uh, related to carrying excess adipose tissue. And just to, just one clarification there, because it may be unclear what is meant by 120% or 140%, but that's of the 95th percentile of you know what you would expect for their for their age again this is not saying that it you know if you fall in these categories that you're automatically going to show up in an operating room and get a procedure done no actually, <laughs> these yo, are actually the surgeons come consider. to your house they actually come to your house <laughs> yeah, they eviscerate you on yeah, the spot yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no so this is this is candidacy for referral and consultation and that may mean that they, you know, the surgeon talks with you and lays out the options and ultimately you decide, hey, I know that this is an option. This is on the, you know, this, this is a, a possibility. I'm going to do these other things and then follow up in X amount of time and maybe set some goals and targets. And if we reach them, great. And if we don't, maybe we come back to the, to the question of surgery or something. It's that you'd rather um, have this uh, conversation a little bit earlier in the process, um, have all those details potentially worked out um, and, and understand what you, you know, maybe getting into. And additionally, you would probably have less post-surgical complications if you did this, you know, on the, you know, in the lower ranges of these BMI targets when people are candidates compared to somebody whose BMI is 50 or 55 and they have, you know, seven obesity related comorbidities that are all very severe. All of those things increase, you know, operative risk and things like that too. So a lot of different considerations, but the point again that, and, and I emphasize this just because of how poorly people who 
um, either did not read these guidelines, don't care to read these guidelines, or who have a particular agenda in their mind when they, you know, publicly put out commentary on this, when they probably shouldn't be speaking about it, is thinking that all of this is that doctors are are pushing all of these things on on people, and it's like these are the treatment options that we have available. And when consulting with a patient, we discuss what are the potential benefits of this treatment? What are the potential downsides of this treatment? And we can come to a decision. Um, And additionally, none of these things are being recommended either instead of or before or as a replacement for lifestyle interventions in any guideline anywhere. (laughs) Yeah. Literally none of the guidelines are like, hey, uh, consider surgery instead or in place of. It's like, no, if somebody's doing the lifestyle recommendations to the best of their ability and that is not for whatever reason addressing the underlying biology going on then we need to you know intensify the intervention and there are options there medications surgery etc uh, also just briefly because some people are like you're talking about bariatric surgery for kids what about their growth it's going to stunt their growth or really bad outcomes so uh, the current evidence overwhelmingly shows that not to be the case, does not negatively impact pubertal pubertal, uh, development, linear growth, um, or any sort of, you know, bone growth or anything like that. Seems like this is really well tolerated and again, reduces the risk of developing obesity related chronic disease that would severely impair somebody's health trajectory throughout their life. Um, And that's not just from like physiological sort of uh, diseases, but also psychosocial stuff and, and, and whatnot. Um, and so again, this pot particular podcast is going to focus on obesity medicine. So the current recommendations again, from 19 current guidelines suggest that we can use pharmacotherapy as an adjunct to lifestyle for, uh, managing obesity, uh, and maintenance of, uh, obesity remission for individuals with BMI greater than 30 or a BMI greater than 27 who uh, have adiposity-related complications. And this is also, to again, to support nutritional interventions, physical activity, and other sorts of treatments. So again, it's not in place of or instead of, it's in addition to, uh, again, why or when you can and. And I feel like they should have said that in the guide. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't consult you, yeah. <laughs> Did not consult me, yes. Okay, so I guess here's the big question, Austin. Why, why would you even consider medications or surgery? Like, why don't we just get people to do the lifestyle stuff harder, just do better? Yeah. And, and, you know, that's a very common refrain is that, you know, people should just do this or just like try more. And, 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 you know, I, I challenge people who um, make those sorts of claims to find and provide us with a quality randomized trial of lifestyle interventions that show a degree of weight loss that um, is anywhere near what is achieved in similar randomized trials of these other interventions like medications and surgery. There are none, zero randomized trials that um, can uh, provide a reliable result um, on par with these other treatments. Now, I already hear the objections of, I lost a bunch of weight and I kept it off, or I know somebody who lost a bunch of weight and kept it off, and therefore everybody can do it. And again, this is a profound misunderstanding of this condition. It fails to recognize the variation in biology that people have and how that biology interacts with the surrounding environment. And sometimes I challenge people to think about this perhaps in another way. Everybody knows somebody who is just 
rail thin, <laughs> extremely lean, always has been, always seems to be, always will, you know, and, and people are like, that dude can, you know, or, 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 uh, or girl can eat whatever they want. And they always stay super, super thin, no matter what, what, you know, I know several people like this in my own life. And it's like, if you challenge that person to try as hard as they can to weigh 300 pounds or something like that, <laughs> What is the likelihood that that person could do that? That this is the kind of person who can, who you know, they have been completely rock solid, stable at a particular weight, very lean for their entire life, through no active effort. They seem to just live, and that's where they are. That person has essentially no chance of doing that. And we, you know, if we were in a world that incentivized, you know, weighing say three hundred pounds, you could wag your finger at that person and tell them to try harder all you wanted, and it would just simply never happen. We're dealing with the flip, the reverse of that kind of situation. There's underlying biology that is driving this to varying degrees in different people. And so these different people are going to have fundamentally different experiences. Some people may be able to alter their own personal, you know, eating environment, some of their habits and achieve weight loss and sustain it. But Every piece of evidence that we have on this suggests that that is a relatively small minority of people who can accomplish that. And intensive behavioral interventions that are done in randomized, you know, controlled trials on this, again, fail to achieve a, a, a quarter of what we see with the mo more potent medications and surgical treatments that we have these days. So it's just not on the same level. And so it's, 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 uh, I, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some of the best data we have on this, these intensive lifestyle interventions alone, it's from the look ahead study, which enrolled over 5,000 subjects with overweight or obesity and type two diabetes. Half of the group got this intensive lifestyle intervention. The other half actually got metformin. Uh, for the first year, participants had two to three weekly group treatment sessions regarding nutrition and exercise counseling. For the next three years, individuals had this counseling twice per month. So pretty intensive, like follow-up support, et cetera. At one year, about a third, so 877 subjects on the lifestyle group had lost greater than 10% of their initial weight. Of these 877 subjects, 70% uh, of them were able to maintain greater than 5% weight loss through year four, the end of the study. This means about one quarter of the individuals recruited into the lifestyle group were able to lose and maintain a clinically significant amount of weight. And this is with intense sort of, again, lifestyle change support, professional help, etc. So yeah, for some lifestyle change alone can accomplish this. Uh, and adherence to these lifestyle changes is important for both achieving and sustaining clinically significant durable weight loss for others. And even in this exact study, uh, this is very challenging. And some may benefit from additional interventions to include medication and or surgery to make it easier to adhere to these lifestyle changes. And that's the way I think I want to frame it. It's like, yes, we know that lifestyle change can be very, very powerful. And the better you can, it, somebody can adhere to those things, doing the exercise, adhering to a health promoting dietary pattern, the better. And so if somebody, for whatever reason, biology interacting with the local environment, their resources, et cetera, if they can't get there, then we should help them get there. And so it's not like a crutch or a Band-Aid or anything else like that. We're just making it more viable for them to adhere to the lifestyle changes that we know can be so powerful. Uh, and again, across all guidelines, all guidelines are recommending these intensive lifestyle changes. And we're just trying to find ways to better support people in adhering to those things. We're not saying, ah, you don't need to exercise. Ah, you can eat whatever you want as long as you take this medication. In fact, again, and I cannot stress this enough, 
all of the guidelines are recommending heavy, intensive lifestyle change and giving uh, recommendations on how to do that. And we're, and then in addition, add on some additional support if people need it. And that's exactly how I think about this. If somebody can get to where they're going with just these intensive lifestyle changes and, uh, you know, great. And if somebody can't, great. We have, we have some options and, and we'll figure out uh, the best way to support them. So let's move on to how these weight loss medications work. So in general, these current obesity meds target the underlying dysregulations that cause weight gain and prevent sustained durable weight loss. For example, diet-induced weight loss tends to reduce leptin. This is a hormone that promotes feelings of fullness and increases in physical activity and energy expenditure. Uh, diet-induced weight loss also tends to increase ghrelin, uh, another hormone which promotes hunger and food intake. And so you basically, once losing weight, some individuals very sensitive to this leptin reduction, ghrelin increase are going to create this physiological environment conducive to the body returning to its previously established higher body weight. It is working against you. Some individuals are more sensitive to this. Some people are less sensitive to this. But in general, this is just one barrier that uh, you know is dysregulated and can lead to a less durable, uh, you know, clinically significant uh, weight loss and weight loss maintenance. So rather than focus on all the intricacies of each different class of medications and uh, make everybody's eyes glaze over, the important take home here is that nearly all classes of these medications promote weight loss, promote treatment, uh, successful treatment, treatment of obesity by decreasing appetite uh, and hunger, increasing satiety and feelings of fullness, and spontaneously, therefore, reducing energy intake, even if they aren't all billed to work that way. So some of them have been long told to work in different manners, but we're going to get into the nuances here. Uh, so let's talk about the current weight loss meds. Austin, I know that you're just a big pharma shill, and, and we, put a, <laughs> we should have started with the, declaring our conflicts of interest. Are, are you getting any money from big pharma right now before we get into the specific medications? I earn a total of zero dollars from pharma. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, actually, I actually looked up both of our... Uh, the amount of money that we've taken from pharmaceutical companies over the uh -huh. years. Yeah. Uh, both of us are less than $100, and all of that is from residency-related training. Yeah, I think the last one that I remember was when I was in residency, and this was back when some of the newest blood thinner medicines came out, and I think the Apixaban or Eliquis rep came to my cardiac yeah. ICU and like brought lunch one day. You get lunch. You get lunch. And I had to put my ends. name down, and there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I'm still waiting for those big pharma checks to roll in, uh, you know? But yeah, so neither of us are on any sort of advisory board. We don't give talks on these medications with respect to like promoting a particular agent or whatever. We're just trying to bring you the current science here. So we're going to start off by talking about GLP-1. GLP-1 stands for glucagon-like peptide 1. It's a hormone made by cells in the small and large intestines, which function to stimulate cell growth in the gastrointestinal tract. It inhibits your gut make, contracting a bunch uh, and moving food down the line. And it also influences insulin and glucagon release. It's one of the hormones that promotes feelings of fullness after a meal. Uh, and if it's given exogenously, so if you're taking a GLP-1 uh, agonist, uh, it also makes you feel full. Um, so these are medications like liraglutide and semaglutide. Uh, individuals, interestingly, with obesity show lower GLP-1 levels after a meal compared to normal weight individuals, so less feelings of fullness after a meal. And GLP-1 levels also tend to decrease with weight loss and remain lower 
uh, in individuals who have lost weight compared to their body weight and body fat matched individuals who did not lose weight. So again, that's a really important point there. If it goes down as you lose weight, right, and you're going to have less feelings of fullness and promote more, you know, increases in appetite. And that's an one, just one example of the underlying biology um, kind of fighting against the person and promoting weight regain in that situation. Um, So there's a lot of situations in this, you know, complicated world where our bodies do kind of uh, tend to fight against us. It's not that these people uh, with obesity are choosing to have lower GLP-1 levels than people who are, you know, le- leaner. It's in, in some situations, you know, some of the common advice that people are given to just try harder is almost as ridiculous as saying like, hey, have you tried having more GLP when you're, when you're <laughs> yeah. in, your, in your body? Well, <laughs> you I know, wake it, up. It's equally I, silly. <laughs> I wake up with my smudge stick and I, I manifest higher levels of GLP-1. <laughs> there you go. So I, I, smudge, I smudge my abdomen so that my gastrointestinal tract makes more GLP-1. And that's just, that's just clean living, my friend. All right, so let's talk about liraglutide first. So uh, liraglutide is a GLP-1 agonist. All that means is it is a, basically giving somebody GLP-1. It acts on the GLP-1 receptor, and it's given day, by daily injection. It was initially approved for type 2 diabetes in 2010 because uh, GLP-1 increases insulin release from the pancreas to help control blood sugar. So we're like, hey, if we give people GLP-1, insulin goes up, they're more able to uh, control their blood sugar. Uh, in, a, uh, in an effective manner. Uh, side note, insulin is also a satiety promoting hormone. So foods and when you eat meals, insulin goes up. That's also promotes satiety or feelings of fullness. So in fact, when a meal does not increase insulin, or if there's some resistance there, you can also see some decreased feelings of fullness after a meal. Uh, in any case, while early observations of individuals with type 2 diabetes noted weight loss. It wasn't until 2014 when the mechanism for weight loss was discovered. Turns out liraglutide also acts at the level of the brain because there are GL1, GLP-1 receptors there, uh, specifically in the hypothalamus, which is, that's just a flex that you guys can use that later. Like, oh yeah, it works with the level of hypothalamus. And somebody's going to go, what's the hypothalamus? Then you go, don't worry about it. Uh, in any case, Given people GLP-1 agonist like liraglutide mimics the effects of naturally produced GLP-1. So people get more full. They feel uh, these feelings of fullness. Subsequently, uh, liraglutide was approved by the FDA for treating obesity. So in a double-blind randomized, or sorry, in double-blind randomized controlled trials, liraglutide continuously has shown greater weight loss in a dose-dependent manner when compared to placebo in individuals with and without diabetes. And on average, it's about 5% greater uh, than uh, placebo with respect to weight loss outcomes. And in addition, you get better blood sugar control and reductions in a variety of cardiovascular risk factors. And so, so basically, they compare two groups of people, people getting the placebo, people getting liraglutide. They're all counseled on uh, dietary pattern change, exercise, et cetera. And so everybody loses weight. But people getting liraglutide lose more weight, about 5% on average. And these aren't eight-week studies or 16-week studies or whatever. No, we're talking about year-long studies, year-and-a-half-long studies, et cetera. And so at this point, we became interested. I don't know. Austin, when was the first time you heard about liraglutide for weight loss outside of just diabetes management? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a couple important points here. One, you mentioned that it was approved in 2010, so it's been used for a while. So I think that you know sometimes folks talking about these medicines describe them as being, oh, they're so brand new, we have no idea what their like longer term effects are and stuff like that. And it's like there are lots of patients who have been on this for a decade already. Yeah, at this there are also point. lots so, of older medications that we know that aren't that great. So yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um. So so this is one that I don't remember you know us learning a ton about necessarily in school because this was right around that time, but definitely in 
residency, started to see it used a lot more. Um, although at that time it was still, you know, relatively expensive and needed, you know, prior authorization approvals and things like that. And so now it's getting used uh, uh, quite a bit, quite a bit more. And so just to just to give an example of how these studies work, um, these were from the the lead trials were the ones that that liraglutide was studied in. So an example was one where they took just under 4000 patients um, and they randomized them blinded fashion to either get three milligrams of this medicine or a placebo injection for 56 weeks, almost a year. And when they compared what percentage of people lost at least 5% of their body weight, again, doing all otherwise matched all the same thing, giving themselves an injection, just whether it was the actual medicine or whether it was placebo. 63% of people getting the medication lost at least 5% of their body weight and 27% of people doing the placebo lost at least 5% of their body weight. So that's a pretty massive difference um, between, between these two groups. And we will see even more potent differences among some of the subsequent agents that have come out, um, the, the, the more recent GLP-1 receptor agonists, as we've kind of figured out more around this. But that's an example of how these kind of trials might be run and how they might be studied. Yep. Uh, so the next GLP-1 agonist is called semaglutide. It's very similar to liraglutide as far as its mechanism of action. It's just another GLP-1 agonist, so it acts on GLP-1 receptors. The biggest difference is instead of daily injections, it's weekly injections. So a little bit easier to adhere to that. People are more keen, I guess, if they're going to use it to stick themselves once a week rather than every day. Uh, so better adherence there. And it also seems to result in even greater levels of weight loss, uh, greater or uh, better blood sugar control, and even a further reduction in cardiovascular risk factors and improvement in uh, reduction in cardiovascular events. So in two large, long-term, greater than one year, randomized uh, placebo-controlled trials, subjects found that on average, semaglutide uh, treatment had a 11 to 12% weight loss advantage when compared to placebo. And that's just in magnitude as far as like how much weight did they lose. But as far as the amount of people achieving that weight loss, it's almost triple that of the placebo. So again, huge, huge difference. And by the way, even more durable as well. It seems like as long as people are taking the medication, they tend to preserve that weight loss and have successful weight loss maintenance rather than what you see uh, with intensive lifestyle behavior change on their own. Yeah, similar deal for this medication. This one was also a little bit later, so I, d I started hearing more and more about this one in the later end of uh, residency, I, I think, um, or, or you know, right around when I was finishing up. And so these were studied in the STEP trials, and there are also Sustain and some and, and a couple other trials. Those are like the names of them. There, there's like eight, Step One through Eight, um, all looking at this medication. But similar to the last trial that I mentioned, where they would take a big group of people, randomize them to the the same lifestyle interventions, and then this medication or placebo, the portion who lost at least 5% of body weight on the medication was 86% of people compared to 31% getting placebo. So an even bigger gap. And then you could even look at who, who, people who lost greater than 10% of their body weight, 69% on the medication, and somehow 12% on the placebo. So it went down, of course, um, even, even fewer are achieving that goal. And so the potency and the effectiveness that we're seeing from these um, in the patients who are receiving them is much greater and greater as we get into these you know, newer, newer agents. And so one thing that I want to just uh, also side mention here, because I see this all the time in uh, comment threads about these <laughs> medications. And people have this misconception that they're like, oh, well, this is just a drug that makes you horribly sick. And so that's why you lose weight is because you're throwing yeah. up and nauseating. Yeah. Now, it is true and correct that one potential side effect of these medications can be some gastrointestinal symptoms, things like nausea, for example. However, 
However, there are two things there. Number one is that when these medicines are correctly dosed and gradually increased up, so a typical uh, progression for a medicine like semaglutide might be 0.25 milligrams once a week for four weeks, and then you increase to 0.5 for four weeks, and then you increase, you know, you can go bit by bit you know, and it's very relatively slow process. And it's typical for all of these to do that. When you start correctly and you do, and you progress it gradually, people might have some initial nausea for the first, you know, couple days or so at a given dose, and then it goes away. Um, and so most patients tolerate these actually quite well when they're dosed and progressed gradually. And you can even draw that pr pr progression stage out even longer. Um, there are ways to even do smaller dose increments and things like that, that can, that can help people adjust and adapt to these. And then finally, um, the weight, when you look at the actual results in the trials, the weight loss is not uh, different among patients who experienced nausea or not. In other words, the presence or absence of nausea does not explain differences in weight loss outcomes. Yeah, turns so I just out, want to shut that down completely yeah. because that's inaccurate. <laughs> it tur turns out humans are highly motivated to consume energy yeah. to, pre <laughs> to preserve body mass and, and whatnot. And yeah, nausea doesn't even get in the way. I know when people feel sick, they're like, ah, oh, I don't eat anything. I lose a little bit of weight. Well, a lot of that's dehydration. Um, but you know, that's, sh that's short-term acute stuff. If you look at the trajectory long-term, that's not really, not really the case. So, uh, the next medication we'll talk about is terzepatide Manjaro, uh, worst name, yeah, do you, do we agree not great, with? not great naming. I don't Come love on. it. I don't know what I would pick. <laughs> it wouldn't have been that. Uh, in any case, this is a dual medication. So part of it is the GLP-1 agonist, just like the two meds we just talked about. And the second part of it is called a GIP agonist. GIP stands for glucose independent insulinotropic peptide. You can just jettison that from your memory. Not important, but uh, like GLP-1, GIP increases after a meal though only for a short time, and is the principal hormone that increases insulin levels in response to a meal. Unlike GLP-1, receptors to GIP are almost exclusively located in the pancreas rather than widely distributed to tissues like the brain. So this particular aspect does not appear to work at the level of the brain because we have not identified receptors for GIP in the brain. Rather, it's just on the pancreas. That said, GIP in individuals with diabetes, uh, that activity of that hormone is reduced, which is one of the reasons why individuals with type 2 diabetes don't have a quote-unquote normal insulin response because they're effectively resistant to GIP, which means they don't have a normal insulin response. And they're also, in addition to that, resistant to insulin as well. So you're getting kind of a double whammy there. Uh, we don't exactly know how the addition of GIP works in combination with GLP-1 agonists, but it does seem to help with insulin release and insulin activity at the level of the cells. And boy, does it work. In a 40-week trial comparing terzepatide with semaglutide, each administered once weekly by subcutaneous injection, uh, the mean reduction in body weight was greater with terzepatide uh, in a dose-dependent manner. So at 15 milligrams, the highest dose they used of terzepatide, people on average lost 11.2 kilograms of body mass, whereas compared to semaglutide, they only lost 5.7 grams uh, kilograms of body weight, which is still a lot, by the way, but you're getting over double, almost double that uh, just by using this other agent. Um, it's also administered weekly. 
So this is a new, uh, probably the newest one that's come to market. I think Manjaro just yeah. came to market. Well, like in the last year, year. Yeah, or within the past year, I already have some experience with it. I think I have uh, about three patients that I've worked with on it, and and a couple comments on this one, similar, just for comparison with the other trials. When this one in the, um, I think it's called the surpass and the surmount trials. So seventy two week randomized controlled trial. So even you know fairly long with almost twenty five hundred patients. Um, the percentage of people um, who lost at least five percent of their body body weight on the medication was 91% um, compared to 35% of patients who were getting the placebo. And then even you could even compare it to how many people lost 20% of their body weight, which is a massive amount. Now we're really getting close to what can be achieved with surgery, more in the 25 to 30% body weight range. <laughs> um, about 57% of patients, almost two thirds of patients on the medication lost over 20% compared to just 3%. On placebo. And so you mentioned those kilogram numbers earlier, and, and I just wanted to point out that those might be um, average results um, that were in that trial across the whole spread. And as you can imagine, humans are variable. Um, there's a spread around those numbers. And the um, impacts that I have seen in the patients that I have worked with, there's they are uh, pretty remarkable. I have not actually increased all the way up to the 15 milligram dose. We were sticking in the uh, more like the 10 milligram range. And again, similarly, this is a medicine where you 2.5 milligrams, start that up front, a um, couple weeks, then bump it up to five, then bump it up to 7.5. And that can take many, many, many weeks to do that. Um, one patient um, that I have is now down about 40 pounds, and the other one is about 70 pounds or so. Um, so pretty, pretty remarkable uh, uh, effects from yeah. this. These results are are starting to not only meet, but also surpass bariatric surgery numbers, uh, which is really, really impressive for something that's less invasive with a less, you know, reduced risk profile and is, yeah. you know, more accessible from a time economics standpoint as well. So yeah, and I just challenge people again to tie it back to our earlier conversation around like, you know, try harder and and do the lifestyle more. I challenge anybody to find a randomized trial of an intensive lifestyle intervention that in in which 91% of the people getting the intervention lose and sustain 5% of their body weight. There yeah. are none. <laughs> there that, are that, none. <laughs> that look ahead study is often touted as like this is some of these are some of the best results that we've seen to show that it's possible. Yeah. To like just do the lifestyle stuff and only a quarter of the if you group. Move, if you move mountains, then, then a quarter will do it. Well, look, yeah. Then to me, that just says a quarter of the group that was recruited was able, based on their underlying biology and physiology and the surrounding environment, to, you know, uh, do the li all the lifestyle stuff and have a great outcome. Uh, the other people were, I, you know, still trying to do the lifestyle stuff, but based on their environment and other factors, were unable to see the outcomes that we would prefer. And so, by lending additional support so that they can, in fact, lifestyle harder, yeah, yeah, then and we're getting the, the outcome. The other, the other thing I'd mention on this particular medication that's that is worth commenting on is you would think that things that are extremely potent may have massive also rates of intolerance and people dropping out left and right because they can't handle it. Um, in that 72-week trial that I mentioned, the rates of withdrawal, meaning they stopped and, and removed from the, the the study due to intolerance or side effects or whatever the case is, was about 6% for those on the medication and 2.6% for those receiving placebo. So not massive numbers. And if you compare that to you know the the effects that it was having in those who who stayed on it, it's uh, it, if you just remove all of the um, moralizing around obesity and you just look at <laughs> if you just look at the results and you say okay 
this treatment gives me a 91% chance of achieving clinically significant weight loss and all the associated health benefits with a much, much, much smaller uh, potential risk of causing adverse effects leading to withdrawal. Um, do the potential benefits outweigh the potential risks? Yep. Simple. Yeah. <laughs> Simple. Yeah. Yeah. One of the one of the negatives that you're gonna hear also is that well, you just have to take the medication, you know, forever in order to to maintain the this adherence to the lifestyle stuff. And it's like, well, yeah, probably based on the current evidence, we don't really have a ton of data on what happens when people come off and stay off for sustained periods of time. There's been a few studies and it does look like there's some durability in these in this sort of weight loss. But at the same time, it's like yeah, you wouldn't say that about intensive lifestyle change on its own. You wouldn't say, yeah, well, when can I stop working out and stop eating a healthy body diet? <laughs> right, right, right. If we, ex if, if we recognize that there is this underlying biology piece, which we do not currently have the capability to alter, you're not going to, you know, gene edit all the things that are, you know, predisposing you and the environment around us does not seem to be changing for the better, particularly quickly, then it seems that whatever intervention we're using to the extent that it is producing an, an effect, whether that's lifestyle and or medications, is going to need to be sustained in order to maintain that effect. Yes, there have been some drug withdrawal trials where patients on semaglutide had it discontinued, and there was some weight regain, although interestingly, it was not all the way back to the baseline where they started before it, um, which is kind of an interesting observation um, and, and, and I suppose uh, somewhat encouraging. But yeah, I think that's the right way to look at it is uh, you don't tell people, you know, that they can do this diet for, you know, eight weeks and then they can stop uh, no. because the issue is the issue and it needs to be addressed on an ongoing basis. Yeah. Well, we don't tell people that, but there are people out there, oh, just follow this 12 week diet. You'll be yeah. fixed and ready to go. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, one other thing that I've seen particularly promoted amongst folks who are, I would just say against weight loss medications in general, or, or not necessarily convinced of the evidence, although that, that makes me think how familiar are they with the evidence, but that's for another podcast, maybe. They said, oh, well, the whole point of these medications, you can just eat whatever you want. You just won't eat too much. And so we're going to have these untoward side effects, like people are going to lose a bunch of muscle mass, for example, because they're just going to eat all ultra processed foods, low in protein, and then just lose tons of muscle mass. That's what's going to happen. Uh, so that has actually been studied. And so lean body mass loss uh, is about the same as diet-induced weight loss across the board, although some studies actually show less than what is predicted with respect to lean body mass losses. Like people actually keep more muscle mass than you would otherwise ex uh, expect. Um, while no studies have actually evaluated GLP-1 agonist therapy in healthy individuals who are also resistance training or even in individuals with obesity who are also resistance training, we do know that GLP-1 levels increase with exercise and promote a number of the adaptations seen from exercise with respect to improve muscular endurance. They also improve exercise tolerance in individuals with heart failure. And we know that myokines, which are hormones released from the muscles, uh, after exercise also seem to potentiate GLP-1 activity, potentially making them work better. We'll need more evidence in the future to really know, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see a GLP-1 agonist pop up on the WADA prohibited list at some point. <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> yeah. Maybe. Alongside, right, ACE, ACE inhibitors? Is that, is that where they're going to yeah. be? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I think that it's worth also, aside from all the, the you know, um, uh, body fat and, and obesity related effects of these medications. Uh, a couple of years back, um, basically the FDA set rules that medications that were being studied for diabetes were also required to also be studied for their effects on cardiovascular risk, like heart attacks and 
you know, strokes and things like that. Um, and these medications have shown a decrease in the risk of those things, um, a redu reduction in cardiovascular risk, heart attack, strokes, et cetera, et cetera. And then additionally, they've also more recently um, been shown to have benefits on um, the incidence and progression of chronic kidney disease as well, which is a common complication of diabetes and, and, and many other things. And so um, a lot of these medicines, these and, and a, another class that we're not going to get into today, but whereas a lot of them may traditionally have been conceptualized as diabetes medicines, now they're starting to just be viewed as like more comprehensive, like cardiometabolic, you know, beneficial treatments for heart disease, for kidney disease, for, you know, metabolic conditions like diabetes, uh, et cetera. Yep. Yeah, they really are out kicking their coverage. They're like, what do these medications not do? And yeah. so we'll yeah. we'll uh, we'll learn more about them as more evidence comes out. Um, we'll briefly cover three other uh, treatments for obesity. One is going to be this combination medication of fentermine and topiramate. This is a combination medication that decreases energy intake via two main mechanisms. So fentermine uh, reduces appetite via sympathetic nervous system modulation at the level of the hypothalamus. Again, that's that small area in the brain. Specifically, it decreases increases norepinephrine, uh, so noradrenaline uptake in appetite centers, which tends to reduce appetite, may also increase energy expenditure with a slight uptick to metabolic rate. Uh, topiramate uh, may reduce uh, weight by promoting taste aversion, particularly to highly rewarding foods. Uh, so these are foods that people tend to crave, tend to overeat some relationship to maybe binge eating uh, type behaviors. Uh, there are also central effects in the brain likely as well. But again, not terribly well studied uh, compared to the taste aversion type stuff. Uh, in any case, multiple randomized controlled trials, including more than 5,000 subjects, have evaluated the efficacy and safety of this combination medication, showing a 35 to 10% weight loss advantage over placebo with a dose-dependent relationship. So at higher doses, tends to do a little bit better. At three years, the average advantage over placebo was 7.5% in the mid-dose group and 8.7% in uh, weight loss in the maximum dose group. Uh, this combination medication is not recommended for patients with known cardiovascular disease like hypertension or coronary heart disease, but is an appropriate agent for individuals with obesity who do not have cardiovascular disease and for whom GLP-1 agonist therapy is not appropriate, accessible, or tolerated. The efficacy and safety of combining generic fentermine with generic topiramate for weight loss, so if you were prescribed them separately because it's cheaper to do that than be prescribed the combination medication has not yet been established, although that's commonly done in clinical practice to reduce out-of-pocket costs. I don't know. What is the price difference? It's I think it last time I yeah, checked, pretty it was like hundred, hundreds of dollars. Yeah. So the combination branded product is known as Qsimia, I think, um, whereas the uh, individual components can be prescribed separately and they're both extremely inexpensive. Um, and so this medication, I think, still does have a role because the GLP-1 medications that we mentioned earlier still remain relatively expensive. People may not have coverage for them, particularly if they don't have type 2 diabetes already. Um, and so, you know, it's not like we're flying in the dark if we don't have access to those medicines. This one is one that is um, inexpensive, um, accessible, and in the CONQUER trial, 52-week randomized controlled study of about 2,500 patients to give similar comparative data, the proportion of patients who lost at least 5% of their body weight on the medication was 66%, about two-thirds, compared to 20, 21% of patients 21. receiving receiving the placebo. <laughs> there you go. So so again, this retains you know a pretty significant amount of, uh, of effectiveness in that situation. Those who lost more than 10% of their body weight was 
48% of people on the medication compared to just 7% um, receiving receiving the placebo. Some of the objections that I hear to this one primarily tend to center around the fentermine component because that has some kind of stimulant type effects. And so there's concerns about, again, does it drive up your blood pressure or other sorts of you know stimulant type effects? Again, people are variable. People are going to have different experiences on this. Um, I would say most of the folks that I've you know, worked with who, who have received this medication um, don't tend to experience a ton of that stuff. Some people might be more susceptible. I don't tend to use it in people who are already on other stimulants for like people who take, you know, medicines for ADHD or something like that. Um, and then there are even some patients for whom you know, the next medication that we're going to mention, the combination of bupropion and naltrexone, bupropion itself has some activating, some stimulant type effects. And in some patients, there's a bigger effect from bupropion on, on you know, things like heart rate, blood pressure than, than uh, fentramine for, for, for some folks. But a lot of doctors don't hesitate to prescribe bupropion, whereas they significantly hesitate to prescribe fentramine. And in part, that may be because fentramine is still on a DEA controlled substance kind of, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a scheduled drug. Um, and so there's some rules around how it can be used, who can prescribe it, um, how long, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think that, again, it's one of those where it's like that possibility that we compare potential benefits with potential risks. And I don't tend to write them off you know, write off the use of this medication on that basis alone. Rather, it's a conversation with the patient. If we want to try it, then we know what parameters we're watch we're monitoring, watching for, and what would be our criteria to say, eh, maybe we don't use this, or this seems to be working fine. You're doing all right. Carry on. Yeah. In no case are you like, okay, try this. See you in a year. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, which is not what you would do with intensive lifestyle behaviors either. So anyway, next medication we're going to talk about, uh, trade name is Contrave. This is a combination medication of bupropion and naltrexone. It is a combo med that decreases energy intake by, yet again, mechanisms in the brain. So bupropion uh, is a dopamine reuptake inhibitor that is uh, often used for the treatment uh, for treating depression and smoking cessation. Increasing dopamine can stimulate neurons in particular areas of the brain associated with appetite. And then when you combine that with naltrexone, which is an opioid receptor antagonist, so it blocks opioid receptor acti uh, activation, uh, it's often used to treat alcohol and opioid dependence, the effect is larger. So it's sort of synergistic effect on these very uh, concentrated areas in the brain to ultimately reduce appetite and promote feelings of fullness. So the combination of bupropion and naltrexone has been shown to have about a 5% advantage over placebo with respect to weight loss long-term. It's generally not used as first-line uh, pharmacologic therapy due to uncertainty about cardiovascular, psychiatric, and drug interaction safety, but may be considered uh, for patients, again, whom GLP-1 agonist therapy is not appropriate, accessible, or tolerated. Uh, it's been, Contrave's been out for uh, like four or five years now, I think, as far as in like common sort of practice for treatment of obesity. But uh, yeah, I think once GLP-1 agonists like kind of hit the market, everyone got real impressed and was like, all right, let's see if we can get on these things first because we feel way better uh, about them or we're more promising potentially yeah. results. But these, these other medications still work and can be viable options. Yeah, yeah. This one is another one that is one of those more expensive combination products um, that uh, can also, the individual components are stupid cheap and can be prescribed individually separately, which is how I've used them a couple times with a few patients and have had some success. Um, one one gentleman who I recall, um, I think he started out around uh, 250 or 255 pounds or so, and he got down and hanging around about 220 or something like that on it. And that's kind of where he's, where he's settled out. This combination is not my favorite among the options that we've discussed so far for a variety of reasons. Um, 
But uh, for some folks, it may be the only available option or the one that they qualify for or the one that they that, um, you know, the cost is is uh, makes it an option for them. Um, and again, both of these indivi medicines individually are meds that any internal medicine or primary care or, you know, whatever um, psychiatrists even are going to have boatloads of experience with. Um, bupropion definitely has some potential downsides. Um, naltrexone, I have a lot of experience with in, in treating patients with, with alcohol use disorder. So um, one that I have uh, used a, a, a smaller amount, not my, not my preferred, but if I can't manage the other ones, then this is definitely one that I discuss with patients as an option. Yep. And the last one we'll cover is Orlistat. This is one of the oldest weight management uh, medications for treating obesity. It earned FDA approval in 1999. It's also available over the counter. Uh, now, most texts will say that Orlistat, quote unquote, works by reducing fat absorption by about 30%, which ultimately reduces overall energy intake because those fat calories don't end your, your bloodstream, end up in the toilet. And uh, well, you can imagine the side effects uh, that may come from that. So about 90% of subjects receiving Orlistat uh, in the largest study on this with over 3,000 patients had at least one GI side effect, such as frequent bowel movements, increased gas, uh, abdominal cramps, etc. Some of this can be reduced with co-administration of a fiber supplement. And there's also some risk of fat-soluble vitamin uh, malabsorption. So those are vitamins A, D, E, and K. So this might be one of those cases where you also prescribe a multivitamin. Uh, as far as how well does this thing work, uh, it's about a 3% greater advantage over placebo with respect to uh, weight reduction, reducing risk of type 2 diabetes, and improvement in various cardiac risk factors. But this is probably the weakest sort of medication that we have. And again, I will add to this, it's not just, it doesn't work just by blocking fat absorption. It also seems to raise GLP-1 levels after a meal, uh, particularly in areas of the brain. So that increases feelings of fullness and reduces appetite to some level. And again, we keep coming back to these central or brain level uh, uh, sort of controls over uh, food-related behaviors. And so, yeah, they all kind of work that way. Uh, Austin, have you ever even prescribed Orlistat? Negative. I have no remaining comments on it. Never used it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Fair enough. Yeah. So again, it's been around for, well, a long, long time. It's fallen out of favor again, just due to the side effect profile uh, with respect to going to the bathroom and, and that experience. But, you know, it is there. Uh, and then for completeness sake, I just wanted to do a brief word on dietary supplements for weight loss, starting with ephedrine. So ephedrine stimulates weight loss, at least in part by increasing thermogenesis, so increasing uh, metabolic rate and by reducing food intake. Uh, because of safety concerns, ephedrine with or without caffeine and ephedra uh, are not approved for treatment of obesity and have been removed from the market. Of note, there are no weight loss trials with either uh, ephedrine or ephedra that have lasted longer than six months. It seemed to cause on average about a half to one kilo more weight loss per month compared to placebo, but there's no outcome data on reducing type 2 diabetes risk, improvement in cardio metabolic risk factors, reduction in cardiovascular events. Uh, safety data, in fact, from 50 trials yielded estimates of 2.2 to a three and a half fold increase in odds of psychiatric, autonomic, or gastrointestinal symptoms and heart palpitations, although this is likely underreported. So yeah, not only should you not be able to get this, although the internet is a wild, is the wild, wild west, uh, the safety data on this is not great. And by the way, the efficacy data is not that great. Like an extra half kilo one kilo of weight loss per month, only study for six months with no like actual health outcome study, you know. Seems like a bad idea. Seems like a bad idea. Uh, same thing, green tea, Garcinia cambogia, conjugated linoleic, uh, linoleic acid, chromium, hudia, and chitosan are ineffective based on data. So no real good weight loss data there, although they are, especially CLA, particularly in the 
like bodybuilding hmm. uh, physique. Yeah, people are like, oh, you got to take your CLA and your glutamine when you're, you know, cutting. It's like why neither of those things work. So. Wouldn't conjugated linoleic acid be a type of a related to your seed oils? I feel like that's a problem. Anyway, I, I do wonder. Not touching do, that one. Not to, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not not falling on that on that grenade. No. <laughs> Uh, similarly, guar gum preparations are said to reduce weight by leading to a feeling of post-meal fullness, so satiety. However, in a meta-analysis of 20 clinical trials, guar gum was not effective for weight loss and caused adverse events such as abdominal pain, flatulence, and diarrhea. Uh, so not only no weight loss, but also some side effects you probably don't want. Uh, last two here on the dietary supplements. One is HCG, which stands for human chorionic gonadotropin, which can be administered orally or sublingually, so under the tongue, or via injections. Most people are probably familiar with the HCG injections that their local chiropractor was offering uh, for weight loss. Uh, several, however, randomized controlled trials have shown that HCG diets are not more effective than placebo in the treatment of obesity. Rather, it is the adherence to the co-recommended 500 calorie per day diet. And again, there are no, there's no difference in rates of adherence between HCG or uh, uh, placebo. Last thing, some people have brought up calcium recently, like taking calcium to reduce body weight. Uh, there's some epidemiologic data suggesting that calcium supplementation might be associated with weight loss, but a meta-analysis of randomized trials evaluating the effect of calcium through supplementation or of daily food intake on body weight uh, reported no significant effect of calcium on weight loss. So I, don't, I wouldn't recommend supplementing with calcium any, anyway in general, unless you're a very specific population, um, older individuals in the community. But other than that, I would not be choking down calcium tablets for weight loss. That doesn't that doesn't make sense to me. All right. So look, look, Austin, we're like 70 minutes into this thing, 65-ish minutes into this thing, and we, we're about to get to the good part. This is the hot take section. So I want you to get your hot take ready on this. We're going to weigh in <laughs> on these new 2023 pediatric clinical practice guidelines for managing obesity in children and adolescents. So the guidelines... Uh, I think, in my estimation, are some of the best clinical practice guidelines I've ever seen with relating to relating to treatment treating obesity. Uh, they describe the cause, the prevalence, uh, tools for evaluating, diagnosing, and so forth. They all reiterate what we've said so far, and again, are very consistent with the other clinical practice guidelines. If anything, they go a little bit more in depth in like how to do all of these things and the supporting evidence. So, ten out of ten would recommend reading these. I've linked them in the description below. Uh, however, there seems to be a lot of controversy over the treatment recommendations. So, let's take a closer look at them. Treatment wise, the latest. Uh, recommendations uh, specifically state that intensive health behavior and lifestyle treatment to include nutrition and physical activity counseling is the foundation, is the bedrock of management for children or adolescents with overweight or obesity. They specifically recommend that where available, 26 hours or more of face-to-face -face contact with health professionals should be performed over a three to 12 month period. And they cite data showing this intensity and duration of intervention led to greater improvements than when there was less. Uh, that's a new finding that has not been previously reported in any clinical practice guideline on treating obesity, specific recommendations for not only like how to do the counseling, but also the duration um, and intensity. Uh, the controversial part of this recommendation has nothing to do with the lifestyle recommendations. So I think everybody reading them, if they did read them, they're on board with those things. The controversial part has to do with the medications and advice to use them to treat obesity. The guidelines state that pediatricians and other primary healthcare providers may offer children 8 to 11 years of age with obesity weight loss pharmacotherapy according to medication indications, risks, and benefits as an adjunct to health behavior and lifestyle treatment. 
They go on to state, it is important to consider the use of pharmacotherapy for children and adolescents who require an additional treatment option to manage their obesity. In particular, children with more immediate and life-threatening comorbidities, those who are older, and those affected by more severe obesity may require additional therapeutic options. Um, and so they're pretty clear on that with respect to children over the age of 12. So getting into like adolescents and, and older children, but yeah, the specific recommendation of offering children eight to 11 years of age with pharmacotherapy, that seemed to rile a lot of people up. Although I don't think a lot of people actually read that far into the, 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 the clinical practice guidelines that's on page 59. And I'm going to guess that 90% and I'm being charitable of people <laughs> having a hot take on this didn't even open the link. Correct. And, and if they did, they certainly didn't make it to page 59. Also correct. <laughs> I, I, I think it's just um, people who have, you know, conclusions in their brain already, and then they're looking for things to get riled up about and to, and to make, you know, uh, as you said, hot takes on. And, and we've talked about like in our podcast on blood lipids and cholesterol and things like that. We talk about, you know, some of the risk that you, um, that you have is due to how high they are and how long they are elevated for across the lifespan. And we're in a somewhat analogous situation here to the extent that the excess body fat, that is the sign of the underlying condition of obesity. Um, you know, to the extent that that body fat is elevated, the higher it is. And the longer it is elevated for the higher the risk the person is going to be across the lifespan of experiencing those kind of complications to include their cardiovascular disease and kidney disease and metabolic conditions, diabetes, all the complications of that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so the question is, do we just, you know, say again, just try harder or just do this <laughs> when we have such potent tools. And again, it's not like, you know, these treatments to the extent that they have potential benefit have not been studied in that, like, you know, adolescent age group. We have now a randomized control trial of semaglutide in adolescence shows basically the same massive uh, you know, uh, effectiveness in reducing uh, body fat and body weight um, compared to those on, on placebo. And so we have this tool at our advantage. We have a situation where we are doing aggressive, you know, lifestyle counseling and behavioral interventions and these 26 hours of face-to-face -face contact with professionals and things like that. If that's not getting us to where we need to be, then what do you do? Do you just say, well, I guess this kid is going to have all those complications and die by 30 of some complication? Or do you intervene in a way where the potential benefits outweigh the potential risks. Yeah. What would you do in a situation if they had another uh, chronic disease? For example, despite all their best efforts, they have a genetically related uh, uh, hypertension, high blood pressure, or if they had familial hypercholesterolemia, you know, you wouldn't just say, hey, uh, you should lifestyle harder and try harder. And yeah, maybe we get lucky and we see a remission. Um, that would and all of, this is, uh, all of this is couched in the context of, this is a situation that is emerging due to the interaction of this biology and the surrounding environment. And so, of course, would our preference be that the environment be altered so it is not conducive to this outcome? Yes. But when we talk to people, the same people who have these hot takes about this, you ask them, you know, like, would you be in favor of sweeping, you know, policy changes? And if it came to the point of governmental in intervention to, to alter the food environment, they say, no, that's government nanny state stuff. And it's like, okay, well, if I can't change the environment, what if we tried to treat the underlying biology by, you know, using these kind of medications and surgeries and things like that? And they say, no, not like that either. <laughs> <laughs> and then recently there was also this, uh, what was it, the post from like Steven Crowder? or whatever, who oh, had a picture of a woman with obesity who was exercising. And he's like, this is not healthy. And it's like, so you're not allowed to exercise either. Like what? 
do you yep. want? <laughs> Make you up have, your mind. <laughs> you have to be fit already. Right. Yeah. yeah it, it's like, okay, so we definitely want to promote physical activity, particularly uh, as people are growing up, right? They're more likely to stay with it, continue to exercise throughout their lifetime, and that's going to benefit them. Um, so in order to you know, if just making the recommendation and creating time for that to happen is going to catch a certain amount of people. In order to catch more people, we're going to have to have more areas to exercise, more promotion, more resources, et cetera. And then we're going to catch a few more people. Same thing with the food environment. Yes, we would prefer to have less ultra processed foods that are, you know, high, high in calories, low, not filling, uh, et cetera. And uh, we'd prefer to have less of those. And if we could make that change, we're going to help some more people. So we're going to keep like expanding the net, catch more and more and more. And even still, even with all of that, if all of that happened, you're still going to have people that need additional help to lifestyle, quote unquote, harder. (laughs) And the idea is these treatments are helping people do the lifestyle things that they probably already know that they need to do in most situations. Yep. Yep. It makes them easier to adhere to think, particularly the dietary pattern stuff. And then, yes, we would want to promote all of the lifestyle changes in addition to, uh, you know, maybe using some more intensive therapy to include, in this case, medication or potentially surgery. So my hot take is I'm cool with this. I'm so glad they published this. Uh, not only because due to the uh, depth they went through all of this stuff, which is previously lacking in some of the other guidelines, uh, although those haven't really been updated in the last, you know, five, six years. I, ex- I expect in 2023 we're going to get a new ACE guideline and, and some other stuff. But uh, yeah, so hats off to them for writing this behemoth of a clinical practice guideline and also coming out and stating like, yeah, look, if things aren't working, we can intensify the intervention. And that would be perfectly reasonable when you consider the risks, the benefits uh, of both doing it, not doing it, et cetera, and then coming to a shared uh, you know, decision based on preferences and values and this, that, and the other. And I'm like, why is, why is that wrong? <laughs> I, I can't see it. I can't see it. So I have not seen a hot take where I was like, hmm, they got a point though. Yeah, agree. <laughs> anyway. All right, cool. So that was our hot take. We waited to the end for that. So hopefully you're listening to that. Austin, any take homes that you want? I feel like you've repeated yourself a bunch and you really made it clear how you feel. But if there's like yeah. a, a send I mean, I think I think the things that I repeated uh, are the things that are most important to, to take away. Um, it's a complex condition. People's experiences are going to vary. Um, and do not generalize your own personal experience to others or anybody that you know to anybody else that you that you may know or, or, or may not know. And different kind of approaches are going to be necessary for different people based on their individual situation, their underlying biology, the environment that they're in. And if you would prefer that nobody need medications and things like that for any of this stuff, then perhaps make your voice heard on the policy front and vote accordingly. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Look, if we could set up the environment in such a way where it was conducive to everyone having access and resources and time to regularly engage in physical activity, eat a health-promoting dietary pattern, if that was the default, oh man. Yeah. None of this would be needed. Yeah. No, we just but nobody nobody seems to want that either. So Yeah, look. Yeah, yeah, I know. All right. Well, hey, this has been episode two hundred nine of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. We're weighing in on obesity meds. Uh shout out to Dr. Austin Baraki for joining me on this podcast. It was brought to you by Pioneer Belts. You can check them out at generalleathercraft.com. All the links to the studies discussed in this podcast are in the description below, along with links to our website. So you can pick up the latest Barbell Medicine merch. You can see us at our live in-person seminars. And again, if you have a YouTube uh, form submission you want to send to us, do that at media at barbellmedicine.com. 
gmail.com. And before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. For everyone here at Barbell Medicine, hopefully you have a great week. We'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Thank you.